Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 77, Apollo 8, Part 2. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be uh, just introducing you today. If you're familiar with us, uh, this is where we bring in scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest stuff about what's going on right here at NASA. So on today's episode, we're doing something a little different, something special in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8. You'll notice that this is part two. For part one, we had the resident historian Dr. Jennifer Ross-Nazell of the Johnson Space Center in the studio to take us back 50 years on the golden anniversary of the Apollo 8 launch. We uh, discussed details on the mission itself and even brought in some interviews with some of the astronauts of that flight. Today we're moving out of the studio and onto the stage to bring you some of the legends behind Apollo 8. We had a panel discussion hosted here at the Johnson Space Center for our workforce, and today we're bringing that discussion to you, just trying something a little different this time. The event occurred on November 1st, 2018. It was moderated by Vanessa Weich, the current Deputy Director of the Johnson Space Center. Seated next to her on the stage were Apollo astronauts Walt Cunningham, the Apollo 7 Lunar Module Pilot, Glenn Lunny, uh, Flight Director for Apollo 7 and 8, Jerry Griffin, Apollo 7 Flight Director and former Director of the Johnson Space Center from 82 to 86, and Ginger Carrick, the current Chief of the Flight Integration Division and a former Flight Director. White posed several questions to these legends to get some insight into what made these historic flights successful and how we can apply these successes to our future endeavors. So continuing our celebration of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8 and the historic achievements of the Apollo program, we bring this special presentation on Houston We Have a Podcast. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce the panel and then to moderate. Uh, these are uh, folks that have illustrious careers, so it's going to take a little time to go through introductions. So, um, but please applause after each one uh, as I go. Uh, so first we have Colonel Walter Walt Cunningham. Uh, Walt has 45 years of diversified management experience accumulated at the highest levels during separate careers in private industry, government service, and the U.S. military, with notable achievements in each. He was a United States Marine Corps colonel and fighter pilot. He was a NASA astronaut and program manager. He was Apollo 7 astronaut and lunar module pilot. His private sector career included venture capital, real estate, offshore pipeline and consulting engineering industries, chief executive and senior operating positions. A few of his many awards include a NASA Exceptional Service Medal, a Distinguished Service Medal, a Medal of Valor, American Legion 1975, and he was named to Houston Hall of Fame and International Space Hall of Fame. Walt Cunningham. So next I'm gonna introduce Mr. Jerry Griffin. Mr. Griffin is the former director of NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston. His career included senior positions in government and industry. 
At NASA, in addition to his position as director, he also served as deputy director of the Kennedy Space Center in Florida and Dryden Flight Research Center in California. Mr. Griffin also held the post of Associate Administrator for External Relations and Assistant Administrator for Legislative Affairs at NASA headquarters. During NASA's Apollo program, Mr. Griffin was a flight director in mission control and served in this capacity for all of the Apollo crewed missions. He was lead flight director for three lunar landing missions, Apollos 12, 15, and 17. During the flight of Apollo 13, Mr. Griffin was scheduled to lead the lunar landing team in mission control. When the landing was canceled after the oxygen tank explosion, he led one of the teams of flight controllers who were responsible for the safe return of the astronauts. Mr. Griffin was a technical advisor for the movies Apollo 13, Contact, and Deep Impact. In the private sector, he held senior engineering posts with Lockheed and General Dynamics. Mr. Griffin was president and chief executive officer of the Greater Houston Chamber of Commerce and he is currently a technical and management consultant for Corn Ferry International. Mr. <laughs> so next up is Mr. Glenn Lunny. Mr. Lunny joined the Space Task Group in 1958 as his vast aerospace experience supporting the Mercury, Gemini, the Apollo program, the Apollo-Soyuz test project, as well as NASA head of the Space Shuttle program. He was head of the Mission Logic and Computer Hardware section of Flight Operations Division, where he was responsible for establishing requirements in the new Mission Control Center. His NASA career included, included titles like Chief of the Flight Dynamics Branch at the Flight Control Division, Chief of the Flight Director's Office, a role he assumed throughout most of the Apollo Lunar Program, Apollo 7 and 8 Flight Director, and worked on Apollo 10, 11, 12, 13, and 15. He was recognized for orchestrating the return of Apollo 13. U.S. Manager of the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project, Manager of the Space Shuttle Payload Integration and Development Program, at NASA headquarters, he was Deputy Associate Administrator for Space Flight and Acting Associate Administrator for Space Transportation Operations, Manager of the National Space Transportation System Program, where he oversaw all space shuttle vehicle systems, engineering, design, and integration. When he retired from NASA, he began work for Rockwell International, a prime contractor for all space shuttle operations, as vice president and program manager for USA in Houston in support of NASA's space flight operations contract. Mr. Glenn Lunny. <laughs> and rounding out our panel is our very own Ms. Ginger Carrick. Ms. Carrick has 25 plus years of NASA experience starting as a NASA intern and co-op. She has held a number of positions in support of the operations of the Space Shuttle, Space Station, Commercial Crew, and Exploration Programs. A few of her NASA career highlights include, she began her NASA career as a Materials Research Engineer in the Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance Directorate. She has trained astronauts as a Life Support Systems Instructor. She helped the ISS Expedition Crew train in the US and Russia as a Russian Integration Instructor and supported operations for Mission Control Moscow as a crew support engineer, helping enable humans to continually occupy the space station since October 31st of 2000. 
which 18 years of continuous humans on orbit. In 2001, she became the first non-astronaut ISS capsule communicator in mission control. In 2005, she became NASA's first female Hispanic flight director. She supported numerous ISS and shuttle crews, including leading lead assignments for Expedition 14 and STS-126. Since 2011, she has held titles such as Deputy Manager of the EVA Office, Flight Director Office Assistant to the Chief for ISS, ISS Manager of Mission Operations Directorate, and Assistant Director for ISS in FOD. Since August of 2016, Ms. Carrick has been Division Chief for FOD's Flight Integration Division, which focuses on FOD's participation in hardware and software testing for developmental programs, assessing the operational safety of NASA's crewed missions. She oversees crew and flight controller training and reestablishing the ground and aviation support required for our upcoming US-based launch, landing, and recovery operations. Ms. Ginger Carey. So with that, the introduction of the panel, we're gonna dive into some questions. And so first we're gonna start with questions around history of Apollo 7 and 8. So for Glenn Jerry Walt, uh, on Apollo 7, Apollo 7 was the first crewed Apollo spacecraft to fly after the tragic Apollo 1 fire. What was said to convince Congress, the President, and the American people we should keep flying humans in space? What, what was done to convince them that it would be okay for us to go? Are we hot? Yeah. I'll take a crack at it. Um, you know, we were blessed with bold leadership in the country uh, during this period. We were at the height, pretty much the height of the Cold War, and there was a race um, going on uh, with the Soviets. And... Um, I think one of the things, the legacies of Apollo was the fact that <clears throat> both sides of the aisle worked together, the White House, the different agencies. We had great support from DOD. Uh, in fact, we probably couldn't have flown Apollo without DOD. Um, uh, all kinds of support from them. So I think it was, the answer to the question, it was a perfect storm that had come together, and when Kennedy <clears throat> put us on the, onto the goal, we were going for it. And um, I think with the, with the fire was a huge setback, <clears throat> but only 22, 23 months later, we launched uh, Walt's flight. And um, I think what Walt said in the, uh, in the video was exactly right. Had seven not worked, uh, even a, a, an abort where the crew had gotten out okay, um, it, there's real doubt that the program would have gone on. So I think seven was the absolute uh, uh, standard that we, we had to, to get past. Glenn was the lead flight director on that flight, and you may want to say something about seven, because I think, I think it was a great mission and, and so important. Yes, it was, and uh, first one out of the out of the shoot. Uh, it was exciting. I would like to recognize Walt, though, because uh, it took a lot of courage to get on board the uh, ship. We just had the fire almost two years before that, 
uh, and uh, no small amount of courage uh, had to be measured to get uh, the crew. Uh, and uh, it went fine. I was proud yeah. of you, Walt. Thank yes. you. So Walt, uh, what was done fourth. to convince you, Walt, that the vehicle was gonna be safe? <clears throat> well, first, let me ask you this. I see a pretty good sized crowd out here. Can I see the hands of those who had a personal involvement back in the 1960s when we went to the Pretty good group of people. <laughs> I'll try to be careful and not, not lie. <laughs> and <clears throat> most people today do not realize just how difficult it was to even get airborne the first time. Uh, because originally, Wally Sherrod, Don Isley, and I, we were on Apollo 2. And then the Apollo 2 spacecraft was exactly like the Apollo 1 spacecraft. And uh, uh, finally, North American Rockwell, who was a contractor, finally we had our crews out there working with North American Rockwell. They weren't used to it because they had so many successful uh, aircraft that they'd launched, and they were used to being in charge and not paying any attention to the guys that were going to be using it. And uh, we were making the inputs that was delaying the schedule a lot. And uh, I can remember, uh, boy, that was a long time ago, but uh, who was our director at the time? I mean, the uh, manager here at, at the Space Center here. It was Gilbert, yeah, because I can remember North American complaining and saying the schedule's slipping because the astronauts, they, they keep bringing up a point and so the schedule's slipping. And Gilbert came back and replied and he says, says, that's okay, we're not charging you for their time. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened is uh, we were on Apollo 2. Uh, the schedule was slipping so badly in there that after we had been on that crew for seven or eight months, they canceled Apollo 2. And uh, <clears throat> then we became the backup crew, about two weeks later, backup crew on Apollo 1. And that's because we were training on exactly the same kind of spacecraft and we were aware of the pluses and minuses about that. And three months after that, the Apollo 1 crew uh, died in a fire on the pad. It was a test without being the uh, hatch closed that we'd, we'd done the night before. So it was a, basically it was a screw up that got them to the point where they ended up doing that. Uh, but a couple weeks later then we were assigned to the first crew, which was the first one which was called Apollo 7. So most people don't realize the development in the history you've got to go through to get to, to this point. And Apollo 7 was, as I think I mentioned in there, the most successful first test flight of any new flying machine ever. And one of the reasons that it was safer for us, we were well aware of a lot of the risks, and there were some places in there where we, oh, I guess total over the whole mission, we had about eight or 10 minutes where we were aware that our necks were sticking out. But one of the reasons it was reduced as much as that is because these guys here, the flight directors, all of the support that was going on down here, 
that was supporting things that we couldn't even have access to on board the spacecraft at that time. And uh, I'll give you credit for saving us a, our lives a little bit here. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We've known each other a long time. <laughs> well, for, uh, for Ginger, um, what is NASA doing to ensure the safety of the new crewed vehicles being developed by SpaceX and Boeing for commercial crew program? Um, well, we're partnering with our commercial partners. Uh, there's a lot of measures we're putting in place. Uh, one of the things is you start with basic requirements. So we have safety requirements, we have human rating requirements, and those requirements are built on the history of the programs that we're talking about today. Um, so we, we um, lay those out for them and we give them a little bit of flexibility to come up with different ways of meeting those requirements because eh? that's how we move forward, that's how we get innovative. Um, in addition to those requirements, we also have a safety process. Um, each provider is responsible for identifying all of the hazards that could impact the crew from the moment they set foot in the vehicle on the launch pad to the time that they safely return. And then those hazards, they identify, well, what are we doing to protect the crew against these hazards? Is it a design? Uh, we're building it into the design. Is it something we're going to provide extra verification testing for, or is it, an, is it an operational control? So we jointly work with the partners to identify the appropriate measures to address those hazards. And thirdly, um, in addition to anything documented in the requirements, we work with them to come up with things that we think will increase the chance for crew survivability. You know, as you've seen with the recent uh, Soyuz accident, uh, Soyuz um, abort scenario, uh, that abort system worked great. Um, we, are there other things that we can do for the commercial providers? What if they have an emergency undock from ISS and they don't land where we're expecting them to land? Do we want them a quick equipped with additional radios, things on top of the baseline requirements that can make sure our crews return safely. Okay. So let's go back to Walt. Um, so Walt, uh, the Apollo 7 mission objectives were to demonstrate the command and service module with crew performance, uh, demonstrate mission support facilities, uh, the performance during crewed missions, uh, demonstrate Apollo rendezvous capability, and to demonstrate a live TV broadcast from space. Uh, what was it like uh, firing up the service module engines for the first time? Well, it's an interesting question you asked there, but I always think back to the Gemini program, which was about two years of flights immediately before the Apollo program. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, when Gemini program started, we were basically behind the Russians. You need to understand that the motivation back in those days was to beat the Russians to the moon. Uh, there's I'm sure a variety of reasons to do that, but it, from our perspective, it was a wonderful uh, motivation to be able to do it. And uh, <clears throat> the Russians had already been flying. By the time that the Gemini flight was done, uh, they had uh, gone extravehicular activity, rendezvous, docking. We had moved ahead of the Russians operationally, and uh, to this day, we're still, in my opinion, much better qualified than the Russians, even though we're now totally dependent and having to pay them, I think, $80 million to get a ride up to the space station. Uh, <clears throat> but in, in those days, when Apollo 7 flew, we were busy trying to demonstrate, not de demonstrate, busy to 
utilized what procedures we'd come up with and to make it safe really to go to the moon because no big deal just going around the earth actually. And today when you talk about the Apollo program, uh, people out there rarely know or say anything about Apollo 7 or Apollo 9 because those two missions, while they were important for the program, they were all uh, operationally right here in Earth orbit and uh, all the others went out to the moon and that's, that's about the only way they can think about it. But they, even so, they'll think about Apollo 11 and maybe Apollo 8, Apollo 13, which didn't make it, maybe even Apollo 17, but that's about it when it comes to the Apollo program looking back these days. So the way I look at it, Apollo 7 had a very critical role uh, we at the time we didn't make any bigger deal out of it uh, even as big a deal as I hear people today making out of it we were all fighter pilots uh, one test pilot on there and we were oriented towards surviving under strange circumstances because rightly or wrongly we felt we were capable of handling almost everything and the, the few things that we couldn't handle uh, we were aware of. So in the entire 11-day mission of Apollo 7, I would say there might have been eight or ten minutes when we were kind of little tense about what, what might happen. And what were those eight or ten minutes that you were a little tense? I can't tell you the eight or ten <laughs> minutes, but, but I, I'll tell you, for example, when you want to fire your re-entry fire on the, on the engine, uh, yes, you want to make sure that that happens, and so you may be a little bit concerned a little bit. Several other things that you might do on turning on some of the equipment, uh, even during launch, there's a, we were not as excited as people like to think about or as like they show in the movies, but uh, we were concerned that if we, if we had to abort that we were able to make it back. And so there was about 10 minutes for launch to get us into orbit. And there was just a couple of very brief things that happened uh, during the mission. For example, separating the, the launch escape tower. I think I was two minutes into, into that. And uh, that was important that, that that be gone. But did we find ourselves sweating it out? I have to tell you, no. And I, I can't speak for other crews, but I can tell you for our crew, we expected that to happen. And I think we held our, held our breath for maybe two or three seconds and gone. <laughs> awesome. So for... Um Glenn Jerry Arwalt, do Apollo, during Apollo 7, when both AC buses dropped out of the spacecraft's electrical system, coincident with automatic cycles of the cryogenic oxygen tank fans and heaters, how did the crew and mission control work as a team to resolve that issue? We agreed coming in that Jerry would answer that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was able to answer it by uh, going into the Apollo 7 mission report and uh, uh, brushing up on what happened. And uh, some of you remember in the, in, with the cryo, uh, cryogenic oxygen and hydrogen, actually, you had to stir them up every once in a while because they got stratis, stratified in, uh, uh, in zero G and you wanted to make sure it was homogeneous as you could make it <clears throat> so that it could be turned into a gaseous form and, and used. And uh, what happened was we had uh, <clears throat> on both those heaters in the oxygen, uh, oxygen tank one and two, 
we had a, uh, I'm sorry, not the heaters, the, the fans, we had uh, an auto position. And what had happened was is that the two tanks uh, came on at, at the same time, the, the fans did, and it uh, knocked the uh, AC bus offline because it was overloaded. It had overloaded them, the two of them together. Um, and it was easy to detect because they got a caution and warning on board. We could see it on the ground. And um, to fix it, what, almost immediately the guys, I suspect in the front room, knew something. They could see what happened. The guys in the back room in the control center, and then the guys in the MER, the mission evaluation room, and I'm sure at the contractors, which we had a, uh, a great network of, of capability, said, you know, there's another way to do that, and that's just turn them off, and when you want to stir, just stir one at a time by going manually on. That's what we did for the rest of the flight. It never happened again. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's what we did for the rest of the program. Uh, and we, in fact, it was, if you recall on Apollo 13, when the oxygen tank exploded is when they told the crew to uh, stir the cryos and they hit the switch and the tank exploded. Um, it brings up a point that I think is really important. Uh, the astronauts, the guys in mission control uh, got a lot of the coverage uh, in our flights. Uh, we were kind of the at the point of the spear that had to talk and so forth. But Apollo was, uh, Walter, no, it was one of the Marshall guys said, it was about teamwork and we had this amazing team of people that, uh, and it started clear back in the planning for the thing with, I can see Ken Young out here in mission planning and, and, and then the execution of it, we had this vast network that we could call on. Um, and that's gonna be important for you guys in the future uh, to build that teamwork and make sure that it, 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 it is part of your DNA. It's just the way we thought. We, we never thought of it any other way. We very seldom, yeah, except for a few astronauts, we very seldom heard the pronoun I. It was almost always we. We did this or we are gonna do that. Uh, and I'm just kidding, Walt, about some astronauts. Uh, but I, the other thing we did, and then I'm gonna shut up, and this is hard. It's harder for you to do than it was for us. We push decisions down to the lowest level possible. We, we had decisions made with the people that knew what they were talking about. And we didn't elevate decisions up to a higher level, particularly to headquarters. We just didn't go that high. And they were happy with that. They were happy to let us do our thing. So I think the teamwork, keep those decisions down where, where the people really know what they're talking about making them, and, and you're gonna be great. Uh, it worked for us. And Walt, did you wanna to add to that? Yeah, the, what he said about uh, having the decisions made as low as you could to get away with it, believe me, that was a, a normal uh, behavior for us down there, and it enabled us to keep moving things uh, forward. 
as we've been outside, or I speak for myself, as I've been outside and I watch NASA's operations, now they've been moving up decisions. You've got to get higher and higher to make some of these decisions. And that's not betting on the capability of uh, the people down here at the bottom. So I, th I think that it was good in those days, believe me. So, uh, Ginger, on the journey to Mars, you know, uh, we won't have the always the direct comm between the control team and Orion. Uh, what is uh, NASA doing now to help us to be able to communicate when we're in those phases? That's a great question. So, for communications, um, for space station, the shuttle, and, and even on the moon. Um, if we wanted to schedule a satellite, you know, we could schedule a satellite. We had less coverage on the moon than we do basically 24-7 for ISS, but the comm delay um, is, is very minimal. Very minimal on space station, very minimal on shuttle, and on the order of seconds for our lunar missions. But for our Mars missions, they are going to be upwards of 30 minutes for the comm delay. So you need to make sure that the vehicle you're de designing is as autonomous as it can be, both for the nominal operations and for any uh, off-nominal operation that you can think of. You want to program that into the computer system, and that is exactly what we're doing for Orion. We have some automated sequences that will kick off for some of the nominal uh, events and for the handful of off-nominal events that we can think of. Uh, but as if you've worked here for any length of time, you realize that you don't always think of everything. Mm -hmm. So that's where we turn to the crew. And we're going to need to make sure that the crew is, is trained to a level of depth where they can assess scenarios that are occurring. Um, but we also need to make sure that we equip them with good reference material. Um, you know, I don't know how to repair my washing machine, but I can YouTube it and figure out how to do that. So if we can create a YouTube type of training environment for our crew members on board so they can respond to scenarios when they uh, are faced with a situation where they cannot uh, have that immediate calm with mission control. Okay. So um, for, for Glenn, can you give us examples of lessons you learned on Apollo 7 that you applied on Apollo 8 to make it more successful? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I would have to say, though, that by the time we got to Apollo 7, we'd done 10 flights in Gemini, and, uh, and there weren't any real surprises in Apollo 7 to speak of. and. Uh, uh, the experience that we had in uh, Gemini was the real bedrock that we were working from and the bedrock that we used for the uh, first couple of Apollo flights until we got used to that. Um, and uh, I, I would say one of the things, or you asked me earlier about uh, how did we know we were ready. Um, we, uh, we had a fellow named uh, Frank Borman, astronaut, who was out at the plant uh, while we were uh, fixing the spacecraft after the fire. And uh, at some point in the process, uh, he was called to Washington to talk about it. And there was a lot of buzz about, well, maybe we ought to not continue flying uh, the, to uh, Apollos. And uh, anyway, Frank went there to testify what had been done. And at the end of his testimony, he said something like, uh, we've told you all that we have done. We need to tell you that we're confident we're ready to go. And the big question is, are you ready to go? Um, 
And uh, they didn't answer exactly, but, but <laughs> the answer came soon enough and they were ready. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a wonderful thing to see, challenging the next level up, the Congress, uh, as to whether they were ready to go like we were. Thank you. So for Glenn or Jerry, um, the mission objectives for Apollo 8 included a coordinated performance of the crew, the command and service module, uh, and the support facilities. The mission also was to demonstrate translunar injection, uh, CSM navigation, communications and mid-course corrections, consumable assessment, and passive thermo thermal control. What mission control objectives had to be completed to give the crew the go for translunar injection in order for us to head to the moon for the first time. Did you give that go? Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't. No, I think it's Charlesworth. It was just Cliff Charlesworth. <laughs> um, well, seven proved the command and service module. We, they, they rang that thing out and, and uh, did so many tests that we were, we were all really comfortable with, with uh, uh, with the spacecraft. What we weren't so comfortable with was the booster because on the test mission right before it, it was a mess. Um, we had Pogo in the first stage, we had a fuel line break in the second, I think, and, and then didn't get a restart on the S4B, which was the third stage. And uh, now you talk about a gutsy call for eight. Um, they'd started testing at Marshall and, and coming up with fixes to those three big problems and uh, through testing convinced uh, the program managers that uh, they were fixed. So here we go to the moon the first time on, on a Saturn that first time with humans on top of it and we sent them to the moon. And the mission before the Saturn had really had big, big issues. So it was a very, very gutsy call. And I think all of us, as soon as we got into orbit, I think we felt pretty confident from then on that TLI and, and we knew the command service module was with us for uh, lunar injection and, and then coming home. So. Um, I think we, uh, I was comfortable with eight once the decision was made to, to get it on, uh, uh, put those guys on top of it uh, that first time after 502, which, which was a disaster. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting. Some of the things that the public is not aware of because it isn't kind of in the, in the public kind of record about it, but uh, <clears throat> originally Apollo 8 was essentially the same kind of test mission as we had on seven, except they were going to be going out, I think, 8,000 feet, uh, 8,000 feet, 8,000 miles away from the Earth to do it. Uh, but that decision was an administrative decision that was worked on, had a lot of debating going back and forth, but they started training Apollo 8 to do that about eight or 10 weeks, about eight weeks before we flew. And so they were trained up to do it, but they could not get 
approval to, to do that unless we, we had had that test flight. So two weeks after we flew, people think that that's when they dreamed up to send it, Apollo 8 to the moon. No, it was, they were trained in doing that for a long time and after we were successful, that's when they committed to go out and do it. That's funny because I, I remember, Glenn, I don't know when you got read into eight, but I was a flight director with, with uh, Glenn on seven, and um, I, knew, I didn't know we were going to go to the moon uh, until after we splashed down on seven. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know either, and uh, I, I was walking out of the control center when the flight, the Apollo 7 flight was over, and Cliff Charlesworth sidled up to me and says, I have to tell you what we're going to do next. Uh, and, and he did. Uh, and my first reaction was, we can't do that. You know, we're not ready. And uh, uh, But that was a typical reaction that everybody had because it was a new thought uh, for people. Uh, but when we thought about it for a while, we had to go in lunar orbit sooner or later, so why not now? Uh, what are we waiting for? And uh, there wasn't any answer to what are we waiting for, um, except that it was a big step. And, uh, and, uh, it, and, and I have to say that Apollo 8, uh, follow, following Apollo 7 and Apollo 8, uh, it was like we were on a slide downhill to get to the lunar manning mission, mm -hmm. that we flew a, um, a flight in Earth orbit, exercise and everything we had to exercise. Then we flew a flight in lunar orbit, doing the same thing. And by that time, we were ready to call for a landing. I thought you guys knew all about that, because for about five or six weeks before we flew, we were aware that it was kind of critical for that. <laughs> yeah, tell us. There, well, there, and there's another there's another thing that that happened, um, and I we were flying missions in a hurry. We had gotten used to that Absolutely. in Gemini, but those of us that were on seven had our heads down in your interest <laughs> and ours too. But we had our heads down and. And we just, I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking, well, it'll, landing will come later. I, I, think it, I think, Jerry, it was deliberate. They decided not to tell us because uh, we were doing what we were doing and uh, no sense worrying about something else at the t same time. Uh, so when we got off, it, it didn't take us long to join the team and say, yep, that's the best thing to do. And uh, off we went. So once the decision was made and uh, we were orbit in the moon, how did Mission Control choose to maximize the 20 hours that were spent orbiting the moon? Well, we had, we had a lot of guys uh, like Ken Young out there who were working on the uh, lunar trajectory, especially and especially on the unknown of what was the gravity field going to be like when we got to the moon. Uh, gravity field was affected by all of the meteors that hit uh, the moon and went inside, and they made the, uh, the pull on the spacecraft uh, vary as you went through the process of uh, flying over it. So we wanted to fly the, the uh, profile that we were going to have when we got to uh, Apollo 11 or whenever the uh, landing would occur, and uh, that was going to be uh, 
That was going to be a, a high point for us, was to get that information. And then there were a variety of other things that we wanted to test out in terms of the trajectory. And uh, we got to do them all, and we were very, very comfortable. So um, for the entire panel, so um, as was mentioned, Apollo 7 launched in October of 1968, uh, and then Apollo 8 launched two months later in December, and then Apollo 9 launched two months after that, Apollo 10 two months after that, and then Apollo 11 landed on the moon in July 20th of 1969. So here at JSC, we're about to support launching uh, commercial test flights, crewed test flights, followed by um, SLS uh, and Orion flights. How do we get uh, the crews and mission control, how do they learn from your test flights, what do they learn, and how do we ensure that the crew and uh, safety? Actually, there's a couple factors in there that uh, we have been changing, not necessarily us or our thinking about it, but believe me, NASA has been changing. Our world is out there changing. And uh, I remember at the time, a, a mission every two months seemed normal because that's what it was set up to do and, and we were training as best we could. And we went through the catastrophes up and down and what have you, but when we started operating, uh, it went on. But we had a different kind of attitude. I can remember, for example, Apollo 11 uh, made the landing. That was the first one that was listed as going to be making the landing. But amongst the crews, those of us that might occasionally talk, we expected to lose at least one of those missions to get to, to, get to the moon. We didn't know it was going to be going as perfect as they managed uh, to operate it. So we had an attitude then that did it. Today, when they're going to start flying, uh, I'll be very surprised if they fly more than maybe two a year on that. And maybe that is perfectly good. It'll meet whatever requirements they have. But also, the role that comes in there is the cost of doing these kind of missions. And NASA has, NASA's budget over the years, over the last 50 years, has been deteriorating greatly compared to what we did back then. We paid the price, and, and they knew, uh, I think the original budget for the Apollo program was $20, uh, $20 billion, and it ended up costing 24 or $25 billion, which was a really fine performance on it. Well, today, that $24 billion, if you adjusted it, that number would be like about hundred and. 135, 140 billion dollars. So you look at the size of NASA's budget today, the difficulty you have uh, convincing uh, Congress to make that higher, and the uh, uh, political aspects that go on to it, and the various departments that they've added to NASA. It's very, very difficult today and I'm not sure when we're ever, if we're ever going to get back to that kind of a launch rate. Vanessa, can I add, um, I, I've thought a lot about this one because we had, we got into a cadence and we did it in Gemini and then we had the break for the fire in Apollo, but we were right back into that cadence of 
of thinking operationally. Two months. Yeah, we were thinking ops. Uh, and I don't think we overthought the process. We trusted the people and the hardware a lot. And, and had we flown on more missions, we may have lost one. Who knows? Like Walt says, it's a risky business. But, but I think the, the ability to accept that risk was easier in 50 years ago. There's just no doubt. And, uh, and the cadence, I keep kind of coming back to that. I remember sitting next to Cliff Charlesworth for the launch, the Earth launch of Apollo 11. Um, he had asked me to, I was a systems guy and he was a Fido type of guy, so we kind of made a team. But I never will forget sitting there when we went into a hold on the Saturn and I had just been named to be the lead flight director on Apollo 12, which is the next mission. I was sitting there in the, in the Apollo 11 countdown in a quiet moment, and I started thinking about 12, what I had to do to get ready. And so here it is. I'm sitting at the launch of the first landing on the moon thinking about the next mission. But that's what happens to you when you get into that kind of uh, repetitive. So, but it, boy, we were... We were all sharp. We, we, all of our people, the guys that, uh, yeah, some of them here, um, we, we kept our skills sharp because we kept working and, and we didn't have long breaks. Yeah. For future programs, you know, we have the International Space Station in operations, you know, 24 seven for, you know, humans on board for 18 years. So we have every day an opportunity to practice our operations mindset for an orbiting vehicle. Um, what we are worried about with the cadence of the flights um, for the commercial crew program being roughly twice a year and the Orion program being once a year, how do you maintain that sharpness for the dynamic phases of flight? Um, so that is a, a, an area that we recognize we, we didn't really have to address in Apollo because of the frequency of the missions, but that we are um, going to have to address for the future programs. And you're gonna find too, uh, and it's just natural, we didn't have much coast time. We did have some coast going to the moon after we did TLI and some coast time. But even there, we were active. We were making mid-course corrections and uh, barbecuing the spacecraft to, uh, you know, turn it and roll in it to keep the temp right. And, and um, that, was the, that was the real difference. We, every, almost everything we did, there was dynamics all the time going on. And, uh, which kept us, it was a hoot, it was fun. Uh, and uh, and I, it, it never got boring, even when, when these guys were sleeping. Uh, <laughs> well, I have to tell you, the ph philosophy of this that, that gets me, you see, is I've always felt and believed, and I think all the guys in our time did, you're not gonna get anywhere in life unless you're willing to stick your neck out a little. That has been changing over the last 50 years. So uh, you also talked a little bit about uh, the decision velocity and how you guys push things down to the lowest level. Um, were there any other things you did to help with um, making decisions faster, the decisions that you had to make? Is there anything else? Well, I, I, think, uh, I think we had a lot of things to learn uh, about uh, the uh, lunar orbit 
but all those were listed and they were the result of the planning that we did for Apollo 8 because we imagined all the things that we might do. And it gave us the opportunity to exercise almost all of those things that came up during the consideration for Apollo 8. So by the time we got done with that, we were completely ready to um, use our models of the gravity field to help uh, steer the vehicle to where we wanted it to go. Even at that, we, we were a little bit off on the next flight uh, on, on 11, and uh, even uh, two, 12 probably had a little learning to go. But uh, it, it was narrowing down, and it was uh, good. Uh, and uh, we, were, we were proud that it went so smoothly. Uh, we took full credit for that ourselves, <laughs> but uh, it really wasn't. Uh, a lot of other people that uh, made that work. Okay, we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about safety and, and risk leadership. So uh, what were the safety process changes after the tragic loss of Apollo 1 crew, and how were they helpful to the success of Apollo 7 and 8 and the rest of the Apollo program? Safety process changes. It's, I've never been asked about that before. <clears throat> but it wasn't so much the, uh, the processes as the equipment and as we designed it. And we, I can remember the internally, and you had that one picture, you know, the Apollo 1 crew there, like their heads bent praying for safety on this stuff. That was a, that was not, uh, that was overstated a bit to what they were doing. But, and here's what could be a mistake that we were doing at that time. We felt like we could overcome whatever it was that was still going in that spacecraft. And we, there's been other things, other parts of those changes that we hung our necks on and insisted that they happen. But we also felt like we could adjust and roll with it, didn't like it, and what have you. But we were going to do the job. So it was an attitude that we had on it. And uh, the changes that were critical, uh, we always dealt with those. And, and I think that it wasn't just us. I mean, all the engineers here working on that. The, the, there's, there is a big difference today. We participated back in those days, as we were just getting started, we had 30 astronauts total, until we, well, we killed off five of them pretty quick. <laughs> so 25 or 30 astronauts. But we were participating in the design, in the reviews, in the testing, in the engineering. That is a process that's a long time gone, I think, hearing the procedure on it. And there's some advantages that, that come out of doing that. So I, I'm just glad I lived in the good old days. Well, we'll let Ginger talk yeah, about just to add that, well, the good old days are still here, so happy to share that. But our, um, our astronauts that are assigned to the commercial crew provider vehicles have been embedded in the design even before they, the crew announcement. So for the last four years, we have been embedded in the development of these vehicles side by side with the engineers that are designing it, side by side with the people that are building the procedures and building the crew displays and providing comments to them to make that vehicle safer and make that vehicle um, easier to operate. We are also doing that with the Orion vehicle as well. So while it may not be as 
as, a, as you gentlemen described before, where uh, our, our crew members spend the night at the factory, um, uh, as it was in the Apollo days, we still have that in um, so we can make the vehicle safer for the crews. Did you want to tell them about the story of spending the night at the factory? Oh, that's wrong. Oh, did you sleep in the spending factory? the night at the factory. Oh. So, so they could <laughs> pull you out for a test. <laughs> yeah, that was Frank Borman and I. Yeah, people don't think back. You know, Frank was on, he was commanding of our backup crew at the time on Apollo 7, on Apollo 2, Two. that was. And, and uh, we had, uh, we didn't have the simulators built in spite of what they say. I just noticed that I read an article where I was credited with having about 250 hours in the simulator before we flew. We had 80 hours, plus or minus a couple, because they finally got a simulator. But we were living with it, and we were out there uh, building it and installing things. Uh, the only way we could get some familiarity with the switches and how they operated, uh, and, we, and they were going 24 hours a day. So uh, we started having people there at night, and most of the people got out of it. Uh, Frank Borman and I were perfectly willing to spend the night. We sp would spend the night there, try to get sleep in a little room on top of the construction area down there. It might get woken up at two o'clock in the morning because they installed some little piece of equipment. And uh, Frank and I, sometimes just one of us, we'd go down there and work with the engineers, test that equipment, get it out. So today we're much past that because they've got the equipment that's built. They don't have to go through that kind of activity on it. But we did benefit, I think, from doing that. Yeah, Fred Hayes did the same thing at Bethpage. Uh, spent a lot of time at the factory and, and just spend the night uh, and uh, go from there. So, um, you know, with Apollo, the cadence uh, and uh, the activity that was going on, uh, the hours were very long. How was the workforce motivated to complete the goal of Apollo? Well, that was, e that was easy. Uh, I, I saw this motivation question, and uh, you couldn't stop them. <laughs> As a matter of fact, our spouses can probably tell you uh, how we were doing that on that. And, uh, People just came and did what they had to do and uh, they never paid attention to the clock or anything like that. Uh, and as a matter of fact, with the team we had, we did not have to do any motivation. They motivated themselves, which is the way it ought to be. You like that? Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I, um, I had been in the Air Force in a fighter squadron uh, and I know Walt was in a fighter squadron as well. And I can remember when I got here, it felt like a fighter squadron, <clears throat> where you had these young people, mostly young, and we had a few more senior leaders at the top. They were 40, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and uh, the rest of us were somewhere in our 20s or early 30s. And uh, we felt a little bit probably also like a fighter squadron. <laughs> it felt a little bit bulletproof and invincible, and uh, uh, we got our he he heads handed to us a couple of times, and it knocked us down a little bit, but, but uh, it, Glenn is right. It didn't take any motivation. Everybody was pushing on the 
same thing and pulling on the same oar and uh, great team feeling. That's why I say the we, the we feeling was, we were eating up with it. Yeah. And uh, it's good. Yeah, and, and I have to tell you, uh, only later did I realize some of these things. We were so busy just doing, doing stuff that I didn't get a chance to think about it. But that group was younger than we were. I think the average age in your group was, was it 26, 27, 28? 26 and 27. Just imagine that and the decisions they had to make. At the same time, I can tell you this. Uh, our group, the astronauts at the time, we had a total, when I was in this third group, we got up to 30 and started losing a few in spacecraft or airplanes or what have you. But the average age in the astronaut office in the, those days was about, I think it was like 35, the average, when we had those. And it, it, at the time, we never even thought about the fact we were older than the people that were out there taking care of us and telling us what to do sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes we listened. <laughs> but uh, today, I think the average age in the astronaut office is uh, mid-40s or something like that. And when Wally Schirra uh, left after Apollo 7, he retired. He was the oldest active astronaut, and he was, at the time, he was uh, 43, I, th I think. The oldest active astronaut. And uh, things have changed since that time. Have you noticed we get a little age sensitive about <laughs> what goes on around us? <laughs> so Ginger, how do you motivate your team? Well, uh, whether my team or the, the JSC workforce in general, motivating our, our, um, our community is very different than the motivation that we had in the Apollo days. In the Apollo days, it was a national goal. You know, get to the moon by the end of the decade, and it was embraced not only by NASA, but you know, the, the entire United States. And I think uh, for the current um, time frame that we're in, we have multiple goals. Um, and our workforce is working on a lot of different programs. We have a number of vehicles under development. Uh, we have the continued operations of the ISS. Uh, we're going to be flying uncrewed test flights soon and, and crewed test flights soon for both the commercial crew and Orion programs. And you don't get the benefit of seeing an actual launch, you know, a U.S. launch from U.S. soil with U.S. crew members every two months. Um, so it is a different motivation. And what we can do for our workforce is acknowledge that while we are not flying, actively flying vehicles right now, their workload is high. Uh, they are preparing to fly these vehicles and doing everything that they can uh, to make these vehicles safe. And we can acknowledge that uh, maybe there are things we can do to offload their work. And, and under the leadership of Mr. Geyer, as you know, um, he is working with senior staff to determine if there are any, any adjustments we can make to how we are structured here to provide the workforce some, some additional help. Um, so in addition to the workload, you can also motivate folks by communicating your successes. So this auditorium was full when we had the commercial crew announcement and the JSC community could now put a face 
with the vehicle that they were working so hard to develop. Um, and that really struck a chord with a lot of people here. Um, in five days, we're going to have the ESA service module arrive at Kennedy Space Center, a huge milestone for the Orion program. So by communicating those excesses and keeping our folks' eye on the goal, I, I think they will uh, find that motivational. Great. So for, uh, for Glenn and, and Jerry and Walt, uh, as Ginger said, we're very excited about where we're going in the future. Uh, what lessons learned would you uh, have for us as we're about to bring on new spacecraft? What lessons uh, from Apollo would you give us with regards to bring on new? You know, I don't, I don't think there's anything like a, a, a flight to get everybody's attention. And I think as soon as you get, when you get the go to launch commercial crew or whatever, um, not only the cadence is gonna, your heart rate's gonna increase. Mm -hmm. And I think the self-motivation will kick in. Uh, I think we learned, what we learned, and Ginger's got it right, we had a national goal and we had the country behind us uh, almost all the way. It, there was some wavering toward the end, but by that time we'd already landed on the moon. And I think once you guys get flying, I think anything, whether it's commercial crew or, or Orion, um, I think a lot of your motivation, your, your, the interest, the national interest in it, particularly Orion, I think is gonna really, I think commercial crew is gonna get a lot of interest because it's the first time that that's ever been done. But when you get to Orion, uh, what do you call it, EFT-1 or, or whatever? Uh, yeah, EM-1 and then EM-2. EM-2 EM, EM EM the And when you do EM-1, even unmanned, it's going to, uh, you're going to see it. That's what we got out of, to me, that's what I learned, is that the nation, when it sets its mind to it, uh, can do just about anything, as pointed out in the video, but we were so lucky to be in the middle of it, and it was kind of a right, just being in the right place at the right time. We weren't all counting on that uh, when we got out of college and that sort of thing. But uh, I, think, I think the legacy of, of seven and eight and the rest of the program was, uh, we can do this. It's not easy, it's hard, it's risky. And people ask me sometimes, what's NASA's primary job? And I, I say, well, a lot of it is managing risk, and you never can manage it to zero. So you got to pull the trigger eventually. And um, I think you're going to do it. I think you're going to do it just fine. I'll just add two thoughts to what you said there. <laughs> One, times they are changing. And two, Thank God I lived when I did. <laughs> so um, specific uh, lessons that can be learned from Apollo for both commercial crew and Orion. They'll be landing under chutes. Uh, anything that you can uh, give us in terms of lessons learned for landing to the landing teams themselves? Well, uh, we learned that uh, flying in that thing that we use for training was a dangerous thing to be doing. Uh, Neil and others had to parachute out of it. Uh, and uh, there's, there's some of the 
it's imp most impressive videos that we have. Uh, but uh, that uh, is part of the game. And uh, I really was proud at the way we handled that. And uh, Neil was always a champion of, you need to learn how to do that, and you need to learn how to do it when you're flying. Uh, and he was talking, of course, about the lunar landing. Uh, but uh, there's going to be a variety of conditions that you're going to have to learn how to do, and you're just going to face up to them and get them done. Yeah, that uh, factor that you talked about, most of the people may have seen that in, in uh, First Man on that. I watched it, and I can remember that event. And in the movie, I saw there, out someplace in the countryside, I have no idea where it was, and he ended up crashing the, uh, the lunar landing training vehicle. And uh, in the movie, he had cut up face pretty bad, too. <clears throat> now let me tell you what really happened. My office was right next door to Neil's, in the same building, but I got it on a different floor today. <clears throat> and uh, Neil was doing the testing, and several of the other guys were doing it, doing it too, at Ellington Air Force Base. Right there between the runways is where they would do this. And uh, I think that that accident happened about 10 o'clock. I'm not exactly sure on it. but. Uh, uh, Alan Bean was next to me, Alan and I, and I think Alan came in and he says, hey, did you hear they, they crashed the lunar landing training vehicle? And I says, oh, yeah? Yeah, he says, yeah, uh, 45 minutes ago, Neil was uh, doing it. And I says, I, Neil couldn't have been doing it. He's in his office right next door. And uh, Alan and I went over and looked in. There's Neil Armstrong. N nothing cut up on his face or anything. And he's sitting there with his paperwork, and he's filling out his paperwork, 45 minutes after that happened. That is more the real kind of people that we had and it took in those days. So it's kind of interesting, and the public at large will never know that when they look at and <laughs> see it on the movie. <laughs> One of the things I'm interested in is, uh, you know, with respect to the water landing, so two of the three new vehicles that we are developing are going to land in the water. And, you know, in the Apollo program, you were up for a couple of weeks and you land in the water. Uh, some of our crews are going to be up for six months and on journeys to Mars longer than that and landing in the water. Um, based on your experience, is there anything that you would like to share of things we should think about and consider as we go back to water landings? Uh, well, there's no question that if you had a good land landing, uh, even like the Russians are doing, that's the one thing that they've that we've never caught up with them on on the land landings. But in the water, and looking at the spacecraft, which is only slightly larger than the one we had back there, it looks to me like it's still possible that after you land in the water, it turns over. So you probably have refill bag bags out there to turn it back over. Uh, it's, uh, that's nice for the landing, but I'll never forget, uh, on ours, the first manned uh, capsule like that, uh, when we landed and turned over, and then what we had to do is we had to get out and, and turn a switch on, I think, to inflate the bags, and there was nothing automatic about those bags. 
And uh, uh, the one that was supposed to do that was Don Isley. And uh, we were hanging upside down for a little while there, and, and Isley started getting loose, and he says, says, could one of you guys turn that switch on? And uh, our commander, of course, <coughs> turned and he says, hey, Walt, go ahead and turn the switch on. I got out of my couch hanging, hanging like this. But I got, by the time I got down there and trying to find the switch and turn the thing on, I was getting about to the point to throw up too. So if you can find a better system on, the, on, the, on those switches, or whatever, maybe you can do it automatically somehow, I'd recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Ginger, do you want to talk about our, our plans for uh, water recovery? under your area? Oh, yeah, we are, you know, well, I'll tell you right now, there's an underway recovery test going on um, just off the shore of San Diego as we're preparing um, to make sure that we're ready to support uh, the recovery of the Orion capsule and our crew members. So we conduct quite a number of tests, both um, at our neutral buoyancy facility here and out in open seawater so we can make sure that all of the pieces of the puzzle uh, that have to work together, um, that we know where they're gonna land, that we can get there in time, that we can get the crews out of the vehicle so that they are not throwing up. Um, get them safely onto a ship, get that ship safely to shore. If there's any medical conditions that occur, do we have the right uh, helicopters and have we made arrangements with the um, local area hospital? So there is a lot of effort going on by a lot of different people um, to make sure that we have this capability in place, whether we're landing on one of the commercial vehicles or whether we're landing um, in our Orion capsule. Can I ask you a question about that on Orion? Uh, one, I strongly recommend not, not going through it if you don't have to, especially since you'll, have, you'll probably be having crews that have been up there a lot longer, okay? And originally, years ago, I remember that Orion was going to land on land. Can you tell me uh, why they changed, uh, and now it's water landing too, I feel sorry for them. I feel like I should call up our center director and former Orion program manager to answer that question. Um, no, I cannot tell you exactly why that happened. What I can tell you is uh, the original plans were assessed and uh, this new proposal came up, but we do understand and we do recognize that it is not preferable, but there were technical decisions that were, uh, technical uh, considerations that were put in place to make sure. Yeah, you can ask Mark when we get off stage. <laughs> it's a, uh, back to you, Ginger. So um, for Gateway and Orion, um, are there additional lessons learned from Apollo that uh, you think we'll be incorporating? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as the administrator stated in the video that we watched, um, you know, for Apollo, our goal was to get to the moon. Um, but for the Gateway program, our goal is to stay there. So from the Space Policy Directive, um, we have been chartered to lead the development of an innovative and sustainable exploration program that starts at the moon and allows us to use the gateway as a base, as a base to go off beyond the moon to Mars. Um, the, the program that we're, we've been chartered to set up, um, we've been tasked with uh, combining with, I mean, joining forces with our international partners 
and uh, even new international partners that we have not had any experience with in the space station program, and also um, joining forces with the commercial industry. So when you look at Apollo, uh, certainly we're going to look to the Apollo programs for lessons learned about remembering what it's like to operate in the lunar vicinity and potentially one day on the surface of the moon. Um, for the International Space Station program, they have quite a, a wide uh, uh, array of experiences in negotiations with international partners that we will choose from, I mean that we will pick from, um, and also the, even the Orion program uh, in their partnership with ESA. And then for the commercial uh, aspect of it, we have lessons to be learned from how the ISS handled the commercial cargo contracts and the new partnerships uh, and the early lessons learned we're seeing in how we have set up the structure for the commercial crew program. So Gateway will have to pull on all of our histories and the lessons learned from all of our programs because it, because it is going to be such a unique, uniquely structured program. Okay, so we're about to uh, come near the end. And so uh, this final question is for everyone as well. Uh, so what advice do you have for JSC employees trying to make contributions in the development of the new programs, of the new vehicles? What advice would you okay. give employees that want to make a contribution? How can they do that? What are the things that they should be trying to do? To be ready. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, we, I go back to the, what we went through, and uh, it, it made us ready to do what we had to do. And you guys are now getting ready to start that experience. Um, the crew vehicle will go through a variety of turns as it, as it matures, uh, and you'll learn something from every one. But in the, in the front end, uh, I think you ought to have an expectation that it's going to be a little bit like Gemini. We had things go wrong with the Gemini spacecraft regularly, uh, thrusters and so on, fuel cells, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, and uh, uh, it, would, it, was a, it was a time when people had to tackle the new problems as they came along. And flight rate helped that. Uh, a, a cadence of two months, uh, is good uh, for that kind of thing. Uh, if, if you can get anywhere near uh, getting to something like that, but you have two systems, right? You have one crew from uh, one supplier and you got another supplier, so presumably you can uh, work that to your advantage and get as much flight experience as you can in the team. And the faster you can do that, the better it's gonna be. Jerry? I would just add, uh, for the employees here today, just remember that you are a part of history. Uh, look at these gentlemen here on stage. I mean, they are three gentlemen representative of a generation of people that did something that, when you look back on it now, seemed unachievable. And you have an opportunity to, to play a similar role now to get us to the next step so that 50 years from now, you'll be on this stage. Um, I don't think I'll still be here. Um, but you'll be on this stage, and, and people will be asking you similar questions about what advice do, do you have to help them take the even next step. I, th I think you're both right on. And, you know, I kind of look at the commercial crew piece as kind of your Gemini. Yeah. Um, you're going to get 
more flights and get ready and get kind of in the groove. Uh, and then you're going to take that big step next to go to the moon. And I can tell you, I think we would all tell you that it's, it's different. Um, your whole thought process has to go through a little bit of change because unlike low Earth orbit, you can probably get them home if you had to and I don't know, matter of hours. Um, you get out to the moon, you know, you're three and a half days or so from if there's something goes wrong. So you're, th and we even had, even the calm delay, as small as it was, we had to get used to that. In fact, for a while, we sounded like a World War II aviation movie. You know, we were using over to indicate that uh, we were through talking, now it's time for you to talk, because we were stepping on each other. And part of that was the delay in the network. It wasn't the distance, it was part of it, but the network delay. So I, I really think um, you have an opportunity now to kind of rekindle, at least in part, what we got to do. You got, you got better technology. You got uh, companies that are outstanding that can, can do a lot of stuff, and you got to I keep telling people around the world, the people at NASA are just as smart as, in fact, they're a lot smarter than we were. <laughs> uh, and uh, smarter is probably the better word. I'm looking at Brian Lunny. Uh, uh, but uh, anyhow, I, I really think you're, you're off on an adventure now, and uh, think of it that way. Uh, that's what I'd say. <clears throat> it just dawned on me, too. Uh, I think you've got like 45 or 50 astronauts in the astronaut office now. And I just wonder, if any of those people are here, can I see the hands of anybody that's working at the astronaut office? There's a couple. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Way back there. Okay. The, uh, there was another thought I had that I thought they were going to find interesting, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> but, I'm allowed that, okay. I'll just I'll chart that up to my age. But I was, I was going to say this. If you are working on a program, be committed. It's not just a job. It's so much better if you are into that and you've bought into what they're trying to do and you're going to add what it takes to make it a success. Uh, as I look back on it, I feel so fortunate at this stage of my life. I've done a lot of other things since, but I feel so fortunate to have had that eight years here back when the, the, that was the criteria on it. Thank you. Well, I want you guys to join me in thanking our panel. I know this was a tremendous conversation, and we just thank you all uh, for all of the information that you shared, the advice. Thank you very much. Welcome to space. 
Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that. That was a little different from what we usually do. It's a onstage presentation, but there was a lot of great stuff in there. And of course, uh, not many times do we get that many legends all together uh, to talk about some of the great history we have at the Johnson Space Center. So I hope you liked it. We're, again, we're in the middle of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions. Uh, you can check out some more at nasa.gov specials Apollo 50th. Otherwise, you can check out uh, some of our other NASA podcasts on nasa.gov slash podcasts. There's some great ones uh, that I know I'll be binging on. Is uh, On the Mission, Invisible Network, Gravity Assist, NASA in Silicon Valley, uh, Rocket Ranch. Yeah, we got a lot now. Uh, you can go to nasa.gov uh, slash uh, ISS to learn about the information on uh, what's going on now. Uh, we got some commercial crew launches coming up, so make sure to uh, check out some of those on nasa.gov slash NTV to find out how you can watch them live. And join us on all of the social medias, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NASA, at NASA Johnson Space Center, whatever you like. Use the hashtag AskNASA and uh, submit a question on your favorite platform. Uh, for either us or for um, either the Johnson Space Center or for Houston, we have a podcast. But if you want it on the show, just make sure to mention Houston, we have a podcast. So this episode was recorded on November 1st, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, and Kelly Humphreys. Thanks to Vanessa White for moderating this, uh, this episode. And uh, to our panelists, Walt Cunningham, Glenn Lunny, Jerry Griffin, and Ginger Carrick. Happy 50th anniversary to NASA's Apollo program. That'll wrap up our two-part series for Apollo 8, and we'll be back next week.